your host, Luca Rocchini, and welcome to a new episode of the Carpe Diem podcast. Today I'm going to talk with Ash Perring from the UK. Ash is a performer, clown, children's charity founder, and now writer. In 2007, he launched the Flying Seagull Project, a troupe of entertainers engaging children and adults in art, music, craft, circus skills, games, and performances. Since then, the group has worked with more than 150,000 children in hospitals, orphanage, deaf, blind schools, refugees camps, and slums around the world. Ash works with children in refugee camps that show clear signs of trauma and see other people as threats, but play has the power to change that. The underlying philosophy of the Flying Seagull Project is that everyone has the right to put aside the careers of life and smile. In 2019, Ash released his book, The Real Play Revolution, which shares the full incredible picture, including personal experiences. Hey Ash, thanks for being here. How are no you? Worries. Where are you at the moment? Right now I'm in the UK, in the Midlands. Great, great, great. And firstly, before talking about the Flying Seagull project, if you can tell us about your background, um, what was the inspiration for studying and working in the entertainment world, and how did it progress over the years? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I, it kind of started, I guess, because I was born. Uh, with a hearing problem so I was born with only about 20% of my hearing and so when I had an operation I think I was around two and a half um, they used music and uh, music tuition and being part of you know the county music stuff to encourage me to catch up with um, with my academic studies and with my peer group uh, and I mean I loved it I, we're quite a musical family anyway but it was from that minute we got into it and I think because they weren't aiming for an output you know it was the experience of music they wanted me involved with rather than me to become a concert violinist that for me it was always a very free and very kind of positive experience um, then when I caught up with with the rest of my peer groups I just loved it I just I love music and you know the freedom of being Within creativity, when, as I say, when it's not output based, within creativity, there is such a liberation where there's no such thing as not good enough. You know, some of the worst singers are some of the most successful singers. Tom Waits has not got a good voice, but he's one of the most beloved singers there are because it's actually kind of your soul gets a chance to express itself. And if it's authentic, we'll love it. And I think I've always enjoyed that. And then, yeah, we were in school. And a, a group came into my school and they were doing Peter and the Wolf. And I, remember, I was only about seven or eight and they, they didn't wear shoes. I remember thinking like, whoa, they're not wearing shoes. Cool. Probably just a bunch of hippies. But like I was really taken with it. And they did. They dressed some of the kids up and they, they had volunteers out the audience. And it was just that, again, that energy and that freedom and that kind of it felt rebellious without being destructive, um, which I really liked. because I was quite a good kid, but I had a lot of energy. Um, and then, yeah, I left school as soon as I possibly could. I went to a horrible school, Sandy Upper, may you crumble brick by brick. I went to a horrible school that crushed children's energy and dreams. So I left, went to acting college. Then I got a scholarship to a London drama school. Um, and that's where things took a slightly different turn in that 
almost the kind of opposite happened from what I'd always experienced in creativity, which is within the business of London drama schools, it becomes only focused on output. You start to objectify your own self in you know, really organised photos and it's strict way to write a CV and you have to learn this. And I suddenly felt actually it was the opposite of my soul's vehicle to expression. I was somehow molly coddling my creativeness, creativity, sorry, into something that can be marketed in a corporate acting world. So already I kind of didn't really like that. Um, I needed some money and I got a job doing kids parties, just clowning at kids events uh, at weekends just to pay my rent and pay my way. And and that was that was great. That was super good fun and really well paid. <laughs> you know, you just you dress up like buttons from Cinderella for two hours and you've paid one week's rent. You know, it was a fairly fun exchange. Um, yeah, and I left drama school, did pretty well for a couple of years. You know, had a, some couple of decent theatre jobs, a couple of decent advert jobs. But it was that same kind of sneaking feeling of somehow the vibrancy and the energy that had made me so in love with the creative world and with performance I felt was not present in its full entity within the kind of corporate theatre world or the corporate advert world and then the, the best theatre jobs I got were the least successful and the most boring average ones were the most successful and I felt really I feel like there's something more in this and more within what I want to do with it um, so I used to just you know travel do kids work travel do kids work travel and it pays quite well and then I was in Cambodia uh, doing a, just having, you know, doing a holiday, being a tourist. And I played a bit of guitar and I did a bit of magic for these kids in their orphanage. And it was like, rah, the look in their faces was like a mirror of what I'd first felt when I felt strength or empowerment or freedom or, or I guess it's like the permission to be imperfect. Because in creativity, actually, it's your unique imperfections that make you a true artist or that make you interesting in some way. And that's like, for people who have any differences, which let's be honest, everyone has some difference, but yeah, it was just incredible seeing the reaction on these kids' faces and feeling that energy exchange. And it was completely reciprocal. You know, it wasn't like they had a great time and I just went, yeah, see you later. It was like, I felt lifted. And we both were just like, rah, this energy started to, you know, filled all our, all our entities. And I think after that, I, I left the orphanage like a couple of days later. And it was just that real realisation of actually there's a far more powerful opportunity um, and a far more powerful uh, option within creativity than simply having a show that people buy tickets to and go. You know, your favourite band most of the time is not because they're the best musicians. It's because something about the way they share their music with you makes something in you change or feel something. And as I say, that could be Tom Waits with his awful voice or it can be some average rock band who just really thrash it out or whatever. Um, and yeah, and that was kind of the end of the end of my uh, paid professional career in performance and the absolute beginning of my true journey into uh, becoming an artist or becoming a performer. And that's where yeah, it catches up to the Flying Seagull project, which I think we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh... How do you feel, you know, I mean, changing from uh, being entertainment to starting the Flying Seagull project? I mean, it sounds like it was pretty much like kind of something natural to you. And uh, and did you have any background as well in charities or you just started your way 
That's no, right. and, and, to be, and, and even the decision to start the Seagull Project wasn't a decision to start a charity. It was a, a, a kind of much simpler one. In fact, it was a legal requirement that made me register as a charity. So to begin with, we did a few shows. The whole idea was like, right, we'll just do a few shows for money and then we'll use that money to go out to, and it was a, uh, originally Romania, to some of the, the orphanages and some of the tougher spots there and we'll just do shows for free. So I had a few friends that were all professional entertainers and that was it. It was like we did it once. The next year we raised more than £20,000 in which the minute you go over 20000 you have to, by law, which is right, so that you can be regulated, you have to register. So suddenly we're a charity, which is like, we're just a bunch of, okay. you know, rebellious street performers who do something positive with that rebellious spirit and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so to begin with, it was that. And, and I think probably, if I'm totally honest, the first few years, other than the actual you know, reporting requirements, we were still a team of performers and artists who also happened to be by structure a charity. And then, you know, a few years on, you realise that actually, again, like it's another realisation where you go, if you work on your infrastructure, if you really believe in what you're doing and you really believe that you're doing it, not just because you want to, but also to make the most positive impact you can and to help empower, transform and inspire young people who are in tough spots, then you cannot be arrogant enough to hold it just as one small thing because that's all you want to do. Actually, if you believe in it, you've got to do the next step, which is, you know, become organized and efficient and make an infrastructure and create training manuals and, you know, and multiply and clone and what is your methodology and start to break down and scrutinize how you plan projects. And and then it's like, yeah, three years in, we suddenly was like, whoa, OK, we actually are running something. And I think my belief changed from this is just a bit of fun that the kids enjoy as well to there is a role, a really important role for creativity and and creative output within trauma release, within uh, helping children to kind of rehabilitate into life if they've been outcast for some reason or in terms of creating a, a, a pedagogy around uh, children with disability to allow them. Uh, and 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 entitle them to their right to progress and their right to individualism. So it was like, wow, we've accidentally stumbled onto this truth, which is that everybody in some way has something they want to express and creativity when delivered well is that vehicle more than almost anything else as a based on the idea that it doesn't matter how good it is. It's just if it's you, it's good. If it's truthful, it's fine. It's good enough. So. So, yeah, now the transition's really bumpy, man. We're 12 years in and I have two other national offices, one in Norway, one beginning in the Netherlands. We have bloody six members of team in the office here. We have an events company. We have, uh, I don't know, hundreds of volunteers worldwide, you know. And it's now now it's like, well, I'm running a charity. <laughs> now I'm running a charity. Um, and that comes with its, with its own challenges. But, yeah, it's great. You know, it's, it's all that hand. same energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally out of hand. <laughs> totally and, out of hand. And uh, just to keep it a little bit on on, on the personal side, like uh, I mean, probably you had millions of different challenges. Um, but what were like your personal kind of challenges and sacrifice trying to grow this charity and along the years, like what's quite probably day by day kind of thing like do you had to put apart something on your side sacrifice yeah i mean i think i think anyone who's started a business or you know that they've taken all the way or anyone that's 
mastered an instrument, if you're an incredible violinist, you've probably had to ignore many other elements of your life to, to perfect that. And the Seagulls was no different. You know, we, we didn't start with any backing. I didn't start with any money or experience. And so for the first kind of six years, it would be seven days a week. I would do Seagulls Monday to Friday and then Saturday and Sunday, I would race around as many events as I can to stay afloat. And then every time we went away for three months, you know, which was our usual tours of three or four months, we'd come back and I would have three or four months worth of debt to pay off and three or four months worth of savings to achieve. So it was seven days a week, 12 months of the year for years and years and years on end. And that comes with a toll. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't call it a sacrifice. I loved every second of it. I don't regret a minute of it. I felt like there was fire in my feet. You know, I couldn't stop running around. But you, yeah, you, you can't do things like uh, hold down a relationship or invest in a house or any of those things because, you know, you have to be moving uh, continuously. So, yeah, that, that, that eventually comes to a head. And eventually after, you know, even just a few years ago, so I guess after eight years, seven, eight years, you suddenly go, wow, I'm almost 40. And although I've started an amazing organization that is now almost sustainable and running beautifully, now it's like, right, at 40, now I'm going to start to do what everyone else starts at 20. Now I need to start like, okay, is there any chance of where do I want to live? Is there a woman out there who can tolerate me? And, you know, but it's all, and there's also the difficulty of, uh, and I think, again, if I'm totally honest and being candid with you, there's and I think lots of other people who run charities have said the same. You have to, at some point, become extremely focused on how you define and record your impact, because it's you may go, oh, yeah, you know, the kids had a wonderful time and we're doing something really essential. And like eventually you have to split away your own ideology or ego or confidence or belief system. And it has to be scrutinized in a more neutral way, which is essentially if you're going to spend people's money if people are going to give you 10 pound a month or 50 pound for you know whatever you kind of have to go like ideology and political bias and things like that you have to put to one side and that's quite a challenge because most people who start a charity or start a social movement do so because of a strong yearning towards making change and at a certain point you have to strike the balance between fighting for change but also existing legally and uh transparently within the current system so you know within the last four years in the refugee um, humanitarian situation across Europe I found myself I am the face and the vote and the mouthpiece of a neutral children's charity but we're in situations that are so horrifically unfair and so disgustingly illegal run by states and run by countries that I need to work within and I need to support that you start going you know I don't want to I, I can't go anarchist. We can't protest because that's not our job. Our job is supporting and, you know, the symptoms of, of sadness and trauma within the children that are caught up in it. And I think that can be fairly uh, challenging as well. You know, when you realise that our job is actually to treat the symptoms and hopefully by some of the advocacy we do and some of the examples we share, we might change opinions too. But you can't fight the cure uh, sorry, you know, fight the cause and be the cure at the same time. At least you can't if from where we are. So there does come a moment where you say we are a treatment for symptoms, but we're not going to cure the illness and we're not going to prevent it. I can't, you know, and, that, and that's a little tricky too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of tough balance. You need to to learn mm. to be 
as you say, na natural politician kind of <laughs> thing. Yeah, you have and, to... and, and you have to decide really simply, you have to know what are you trying to do and therefore have you done it? So I remember there was a time, and I know we'll talk about this in a little while anyway, but um, in Lesvos a few years ago, we had been doing these shows and it hadn't gone exactly perfectly. I'm, we hadn't really managed to set, I set a big top up, but it didn't really work out. And, you know, we were trying desperately, but it, a slightly clunky start. And then we'd done a few shows, it was going good. And there was a huge fire one night and I was standing on our on the, like the terrace outside our house where we'd rented and I could see the fire in the distance. It's horrible orange glow. You know, the kids are in there. You know that the police are throwing batons. You know, you just know how horrible it must be. And I'm standing on a rooftop, a clown who's planning on doing a magic show the next day. And at those moments you, you have the temptation to say what we're doing is, you know, bullshit and it doesn't matter and it's you know what difference are we making and actually I remember I phoned my mum that night because I was a bit upset and I was like I don't know what I'm doing here like I, I can't help them and I can't get to them and she was like and I said well what are we doing we're just doing games and she was like yeah but tomorrow when those kids wake up scared and upset and shaken the only thing they'll have to look forward to is know that you guys are coming so it's you know in really intense situations having a very simple fairly naive offer Yeah, but that, that can sometimes cause a little bit. You have to be really just honest and say, we're just cheering the kids up. That's it. We're just making them laugh and making them giggle. And actually, that's it in terms of that's how simple it is. But for a kid, that's the most natural and profoundly normal, familiar experience you can offer. Yeah, you kind of have to stand apart and realize that that's your role in, mm. in the cause, basically. And uh, <clears throat> that's the best you can do. It's actually the best kind of political move you know just showing probably yeah. that that's even more important uh taking a stance you know but mm. which probably there are other charities or organization to yeah. look at that well it's, uh, it's the idea isn't it it's like whatever you're mm. best at is the thing you it's the best thing to offer someone else so uh, yeah I, i could become a fundraiser full-time but i'm not that good at mm. writing formal applications things like I am really good at entertaining kids I've done it for many years it's you know one of the very few talents I have if, if even that can be qualified as a talent so it's like it's the best thing I have the, the best thing I can do it's the thing I love doing the most so those two elements make it probably the best offer because I'm not doing it because I feel I have to I'm doing it because I really want to and I see how much they enjoy it so it's like If you're a builder, go build a house. If you're a cook, go cook food. You know, if, as long as you do whatever you do with love and as long as you do it to a really high standard for, for someone without asking for reward, then that's that's always going to be a great thing, a great offer. So uh, like uh, going back like uh, from being like uh, working in Romania, uh, was a orphanage as well, mainly? Yeah, so we worked in orphanages um, in areas, they call them kind of the rural poor. So in some of the rural areas, mm. it's like super duper hard work. And the kids go to work, you know, from like four, five, six years old. This is, it's changed a lot in the last 10 years. But, okay. you know, because um, there's a few, there's a few social issues in the rural areas where, you know, there just isn't enough money. Lots of it's been bought up or centralized into European, you know, hubs. And you're left with very elderly farmers bringing up young kids whilst the parents are somewhere trying to find enough money to keep them afloat so yeah we worked in the rural poor we worked in hospitals for children who have limited lifespan so put simply who are going to die young um 
that that's a challenge but that's something that i think geez if you've only got a few months left we need to squeeze as many laughs into those few months as we can right so um and then the other thing we worked with was um the empowerment and uh, creative arts for disability so again it's really changed but the the progress in remain in the last 20 years has been incredible and especially for people with disability who now there is a kind of growth and there is support and there is the the knowledge that they can you know have their own journey in life and they're not just there doing nothing in a group so yeah those are the, those are our main projects and uh so uh, from that like how do you expand like uh this work with the refugees like and because you went from to like working in 25 different countries around the world and then we we share i don't know if it was the first one i think like we shared the first trip uh, to greece to the refugees yeah. camp <laughs> it was a, a beautiful adventure uh, that mm -hmm. that was when there was the first wave was 2015 the first wave yeah. from syria and then after that kind of the flying seagull kind of grew a lot and you the support you got kind of grow exponentially as you say you open another couple of branches um so how how has it been like the last few years how how did it all start like from from greece and 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 what have you learned from this experience like mm. well it was it was a really quite i don't think we i don't think we knew we were making a significant change but it was a significant change because we went from uh, basically we moved into crisis relief So the first time when we went out to Greece, I don't think we knew that's what we were doing and we didn't expect it. But, you know, we were still going back and forth in Romania at the time. We had a project running in India and a project running in Ghana with some partners we'd made and a few, another one in Albania and what have you. And it was like, well, how can we be going all over the world, traveling to and from Romania when, you know, but there was that time, as you say, in 2015, I think it was, when it was like you're watching the news and there are thousands and thousands of people walking across Europe in, you know, it was like, Well, how can we drive around that as if those kids don't need a cheering up? And, and it was a real like, it, and I've said this before so many times, it's like I kind of, I feel like I'm echoing myself, but we, we really genuinely thought, is this really where we should be? Like, is this not slightly too serious or slightly too severe for us to go in and put our top hats on? Like, are people going to be pissed off? Are the police even going to allow it to happen? But, you know, you, you look in the, in the videos and we looked in the press and there's thousands and thousands of kids in the crowds. We thought, well, Let's just go and see. Um, so, yeah, that kind of actually when you and I drove out, it was after the, the very first trip. Um, I didn't go on. I was supposed to. But unfortunately, my mum was ill. So um, Mikey, one of our team, who you know, he, um, oh, yes. he went with Humanitas. And uh, and yeah, instantly it was like, you know, you, you start a game and kids come pouring out of every sort of tent and just to join in a circle and sing a silly song. So, um, so yeah, when we first got there, I, I was slightly... I guess I was not arrogant is the wrong word overconfident I would say I thought I know what I'm doing I've worked all over the world it's fine let's get all the circus equipment out so we had this session in um in Idomeni on the border camp which wasn't a camp it was you know kind of emergency stopping point and within half an hour we had everything was destroyed there'd been hundreds of kids and they're going oh my god get out what are we gonna do and that was when you realized that that There's always a kid, you know, in, in nearly every group I've ever worked in, be it in England or the UK or wherever, there's always a few children who have obviously had a bumpy start in life and who have a difficult home environment for whatever reason. And they're often quite challenging. 
they can be, you know, the, the most mischievous or challenging behaviour is almost always the kid that probably needs the most support. It's that horrible paradox that the kid that you, annoys you the most is the one that actually needs you the most and probably even wants you the most. In the mm. camps, because of just how unbelievably traumatic and violent it had been, I'd say 50% of the kid were that kid. So you've got 100 audience, 50 of them need such intense support and they've got such complex traumatic responses and, you know, psychiatric and psychological challenges and difficulties because of what they've been through. But it was, yeah, it was an entire transformation from a nice group who have a van and do these lovely shows to a tough group of really, really hyper-responsive uh, street clowns, if you like. Um, anyway, I've gone completely off the point. So that was that. And, uh, and, but you changed and, yeah, them, right? You felt like you, you changed these kids, you helped them. Like, uh, how, well, we did just you see the change? Be, yeah, you definitely down. see the change. But then, and that's what we had to change. I think that's what we had to do. I think in the past we had led workshops and led shows that they had enjoyed watching or being part of. But in this environment, we had to have a much more, uh, what's the word, a much more balanced uh, relationship. We th There is no authority in a camp. And if you've travelled across borders where, you know, police and border guards have been horrible, aggressive, illegally acting brutes, your opinion and your and your view of authority is completely upside down. They don't have teachers. Many of them have never been to school. So like all the kind of standard anchor points for how you might manage a group of kids are gone. So if they don't want to join your circle or if they don't want to play your game or if they don't want to follow the rules, there's no one who's going to make them, which has a pretty profound uh, impact on what you're doing. Silly little things like you cannot do a line. You know, normally I'd say, OK, line up then. Line up first one. No, no, no. You can't have a line because any sense of injustice, if you're the back of the line, you've already learned that in a food line, and this was before and, and arguably the same now, if you're in a food line and you're at the end being patient, you might not get any food. And that means you might not eat that day at all. And these kids knew that lines mean injustice and you're going to fight to get to the front because it's survival. So every single session we do is in a circle. Yeah. There's no one in the front. There's no one in the back. There's no hierarchy because a circle's only a circle if everyone is equal. So like even little kind of slight shifts like that where we have to use the kind of sacred shape of the, of the disc, the equal. Um, and then there's this, the energy that was needed, man. Like I've always had energy. But if you're going to convince 100 children who haven't concentrated or had any stability uh, who are living in a crisis and if you're going to convince them to join you in a game of a song you have to be bigger than the camp you know when we've been going to moria you know it was burnt down now but the old moria camp used to be on an olive grove um and i'd at the top of it i would have to drown out a thirteen thousand person camp so not just in terms of vocal volume but even in terms of physical and then in terms of the emotional like energy you're trying to shine on so it's super, super duper positive. Every kid, you look right in their eyes, right in their eyes, you go, hey, kifakamdullah, baby. You know, you've got to like, each one has to be individually recognised and flooded with warm, sunny, positive energy. And that's draining. As much as, as, as I mean it, we all feel it, you know, it's also a working methodology. So it's like, that's what I mean in terms of crisis response. When a clown becomes a crisis responder, one of our tools is eye contact and positivity exchange, which sounds like we're crossing between this kind of spiritual, ideological nonsense, hippie stuff, into science. But it's actually the two. If you don't look at a kid in the eye, if you don't put enough energy and you don't win them round and they 
and they do need that. To, to roll on and answer, I think what your question might have been all those hours ago when I started answering it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, you see a difference. We see, you know, even an hour. But if you're there a bit longer in one of the camps, we were there for six months in the end. One little lad within a week, he went from hyper violent and unable to join in to super sweet and telling his mum every day everything that we did. And she wow. came to see us and said, every day he runs home and sings the songs you taught him and shows her what. And honestly, he hadn't spoken for a while. He had no friends when we arrived. By the end, he was really helpful, really jolly, had a pack of mates. You know, it's just creating a chance where they feel secure enough to be children and, and to act as children and play. And so, yeah, that's kind of really what, what changed. It actually became more focused on them. And all of our project is now entirely shone onto them. And I think we used to quite enjoy doing our shows because we liked it, whereas now we do our shows so that purely for their experience. I guess is, it's quite it's quite addicting to see that kind of change, radical kind of change in these kind of kids. Like, uh, mm. I, I can't see anything like actually more important, <laughs> really, yeah. like so profound. And uh, on, well, on it, the other it's a double edged sword as well, just to add to that. And then and I won't go on too long, don't worry. But it's a no, double edged sword because. It, it, it not only makes you feel like, yeah, like th as you said, he's a kid. Kids should feel that way. They should smile. So not only is it like a really positive feeling, it also somehow hyper focuses on just how brutal and unfair and, and, and outrageous it is that these children are forced to live in there. I remember the one breaking point last two summers ago, I was doing a show in a camp in the middle of Greece. And I looked out and the kids were roaring. Like we had the big top up. They were roaring. There's like a couple of hundred of them. And for a second, I thought, this is so nice. And then I almost broke down and cried in the show because I looked and I thought, there was 200 kids sitting in the mud, sitting in, you know, on a ground sheet that I'd put down, dusty. They were covered in dust, not because of us, because they lived on a dusty camp. And I just thought, I am so sick and tired of looking out and seeing kids smiling through dust and smiling through dirt and living like, you know, forced to live like like urchins in the sand and it's not it's not fair and it's not on and i suddenly and they looked exhausted and you see like kids with the fatigue on their face it's like old people you think like there shouldn't be rare that they smile it shouldn't be a rare treat that they feel good you know it's, we're failing as a world if we have yeah. children growing up it's, like it's, that. it's not modern society like is is that's not modern it's the sense like it's 2020 guys come on we have the money you know to to stabilize these things and to make, you know, it's not actually, I don't know, politically, like, it's not worth to anyone, really. No, uh, and, here's, and here's the thing, and again, I've said this a million times, but there is, beyond politics, economics and religion or any other, other differences you may find, whoever may be at fault, whatever you may think, it's not the kids. There's no five-year-old who's responsible for any single one of the political policies carried out by any country in the world. There is no five-year-old who is responsible for any religious conflict or any economic failings. There is not a five-year-old who's responsible. So why should they endure any of the consequences? You may say, because their parents this or their parents that. Cool. That's your opinion if you want to hold it. But that, that vehemence must never allow us to permit children to grow up in that sort of environment based on, well, their parents this, or their country this, or our government that. It, it doesn't justify. It might explain why they're there, but it doesn't justify why we haven't helped them to be somewhere safer. Yeah, I'm thinking as well how much money we throw away, like, 
in, in the from the governments in Europe. Um, <clears throat> what other countries actually like the serious situation? The, the countries that are more close by, like they can do and compare, like they have way more and um, we make with this big discussion. Yeah, and to say like seeing these kids laughing uh, with the dust in their mouths, like it just, uh, I just from a different century shit, like it's not, mm. well. And anyway. there's no need, I mean, I mean, if we, if we can transport potatoes from Spain to the supermarket in England in 24 hours, because we prefer those sorts of potatoes. If we can fly something that I've ordered on the in, in Amazon from America, and it gets at my house two days later, if we can do all that, if we can send satellites into space that monitor the weather and tell us whether it'll be sunny tomorrow, if we can do that, then we can certainly make sure that all of the world's children have a safe house at night and are not in direct danger of kidnapping or any other sort of horrific thing which is prevalent in any of these crisis zones. It's just we can't consider ourselves progressive, or successful or a thriving world whilst we can't even house every child or feed every child. I'm sorry, but like what sort of the, the future isn't going to be a future if we don't look after those people who will be our future. And these children are it, you know, roll on 20 years in Europe. Italy, Greece have taken a lot of the brunt of it, but it's going to be all of Europe. You know, if we don't support and and be grown up about making sure everyone is okay we're going to have a lot of very very unhealthy unhappy and maladjusted people who grow up confused and never knowing where they belong or how to interact okay i think that's terrible for them but if you want to be selfish about it and whatever nationalistic or whatever your flavor is it's not going to be good for your country either because division only breeds difference and difference only breeds you know conflict if we want to rid the world of conflict we, we're going to start taking care of everybody's children like they're our own for whatever reason because you love them or because you love yourself i don't care but either way it's better if you care for them yeah we we we, we need to keep warm working on this and then uh, might see something a little bit mm. different especially after these times but and anyway um Last question about Seagull project. How 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 difficult has been doing the years to find fundings? Um, it has been, yeah. I I I think it has been difficult in terms of uh, we have to be relentless. You know, there is there, as I said to you before, there hasn't been a moment until probably this lockdown. There hasn't been a moment where I've taken my foot off the gas pedal. It's all the time, which is easy for me because I am hyperactive and I love it and I believe so deeply in it that I don't think much else matters beyond that or I haven't been until now necessarily. So, uh, but I guess, yeah, the, the difficulty is is convincing people, A, that they can spare something and even just what we, exactly what we just talked about. You know, we're, we're, we can't give quantifiable impact numbers, let's say. So we apply for grants, they say, well, how many children will you meet and how do you monitor their happiness? Well, they're 60% happier after, you know, it's impossible to get metrics. And, I, and it's been me going, look, I don't know. I don't know how long the effect lasts, but isn't it just enough that they're really happy for an hour or a week or a month or however long we're there? So that's been one of the problems in terms of traditional grant journeys. We don't really fit into it because I'm also not willing to try to break down and, and, and numerify, make numerical statisticianly look at our impact 
I, I feel the impact. I know the impact. The kids show us their impact. The people who work with them tell us the impact. So this human element is something that we lose. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and feelings count. How those kids feel count. OK, what they get in maths, whatever, that's someone else's job. But how they feel actually counts. So, so let's let's say those kind of fondings are not really fit for for emotions. No, <laughs> no exactly. exactly. And not all of them. You know, we have done all right. We've, we've been OK. Mm. But actually, um, our predominance, the predominance of our funding has come from individuals who go, yeah, man. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Put like that. That's true. And then we've you know, we've done festival performances from Glastonbury across you know the whole UK, all those big festivals for 10 years now until this year. So we have a chance that where we get to show them exactly what we do. You know, their kids come and take part in seagull shows and they feel that kind of slightly chaotic, slightly wired buzz that we create. And then I say to them, see how your kids are having a good time. I think all kids should have that. Why should a race or why should a place or why should a face mean that they don't get to feel as good as your kids just did? Give me a few quid and I'll make sure they do too. And it's like, again, when you put it reasonably like that, they go, yeah, all right. Yeah. So we've done all right, but it has been, you have to absolutely commit to something in order to make it succeed, you know, that, and, that, and that can be whatever the business is. And anyone who's done a business will say the same, you know, six years in, I slept on the floor of the office for two or three months because I just didn't have the money. And I thought, I, I can't stop the momentum now. I know if I could just break through just this bit, we'll be okay. And um, yeah, you just got to ride out those doubts and, and the temptation sometimes to bail. You know, I got offered some really well-paid work once for Clark Shoes doing an advert because I got a silly beard and I look right. But it was the same week that I was meant to go to Ghana with, our, with the doctors and do the hydrocephalus partnership. And it was like, I really needed the money. <laughs> I was super broke. I'm sleeping on the floor of the office. I can't pay my bills. And I got offered four grand for this advert on the spot in Brixton Market. And I was like, oh, man. No. And so I thought, nah, no, you can't. You can't be tempted out. So I said, no, I'm really sorry. I'm busy. I'm on the project. So it's like, yeah, finding the funds, personal funds and also those funds is tricky. But um, I just think if you believe in something, if you really believe in it, you'd do it. You know, you'd be happy if you just had enough for some bread and some water to keep going. You know, life's bigger than the comfort that that we seek and that we make our focus. You know, I'd like comfort. I'd, I'd love a speedboat one day, but not till all the kids in the world are happy and housed. No way. I'm not, I don't want to have my own private yacht if I know that people are sleeping out in the dirt and not getting in healthcare they need. That doesn't seem. How could you enjoy something that you know? So, yeah. yeah. It's been a fight. It's hard, but you just got to be imaginative and just speak to people. You know, that BBC Three video that everyone's seen, it's just me nattering like I am now on a video. And then it strikes a chord somewhere because we're all normal deep down. We're just people who like to speak to other people and, and you know, keep you say going. something honest. Hmm. And uh, I read you a quote that I found, uh, I found on the internet uh, from, probably, you know, from Professor Deborah Yundell from the Public yep. Service Academy of the Birmingham University, that in 2015 studied the impact of flying seagull project approach and states, the flying seagull's work reflects powerful current evidence from social science, neuroscience, and biochemistry of the importance of laughter, collective physical play, and trusting relationships for building social bonds, resolving conflict, creating cohesive communities, developing resilience and security, personal and social well-being. 
Now, can you tell us about the importance in our communities or, or what Yondel can describe here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, what Deborah's mainly looking at, Deborah's, sorry, Professor Udell, is, um, is the kind of, well, she came and observed us lots of times through festivals and, and wrote and watched and got kids to draw. And it's a bit like what I was just saying to you then, like what, what play does and what that sort of interactive play does is it connects us on a level that reminds us of the truth that we all are experiencing this together at the same time. And we're all humans feeling love, loss, hope, jealousy, anger, heartbreak, all those things. And when you're in a game, we, we all experience it because it's kind of in the moment, in an acting, they call it in the moment. But if you're playing a game of football, even sports slightly different because you're trying to get goals and you're trying to win but with, with play it's, it's got that similar energy which is it unites us in just this common feeling of just being alive you're playing a game of hide and seek how many times when you're playing hide and seek do you think about how your hair looks you know how many times when you're playing hide and seek do you think i wish i could speak french better you know you don't you're just in the game and everyone else is too and it's like it's a great leveler because it just reminds us that that playful interaction is actually human interaction. In the whole of life is a game. We, we start by trying to stand up and walk and then we fall over and then we get up and eventually we master this two-legged business and then we copy talk and we learn to talk and, and it's all very playful. We flirt, we make business, we, you know, nothing is really beyond a game, a apart from, you know, health potentially, but like in terms of what we choose to do with our energy and stuff. So yeah, that kind of interactive and group um, group energy, as she describes it, is what we used to have in community. You know, as, as religion and faith-based communities phase out, which they are, I think that we are in a very dangerous moment that if we don't replace them with something, if we don't find ways to connect as communities, then we do become separate people living in a capitalist uh, financial experiment where it's how much stuff can you sell? And actually, like, as much as I don't like to buy into quite as much of the, the kind of twee isn't England great now there's lockdown <laughs> like but some of the things that have happened in lockdown have been exactly what we're talking about Co like common concern suddenly people are concerned about the person who lives down the road who before then they've never spoken to there's whatsapp groups in neighborhoods there's people dropping cards through and bringing cakes to elderly people and suddenly we have this common cause again and if only I think we could realize that we've always got that common cause don't we commonly always want as many people to feel good as possible or to be, you know, supported as possible? And going back to the play, which Udell was talking about, um, Udell, seems weird to call it that, which Debs was talking about, <laughs> was um, is it, it's kind of that play does unite you in a common cause. It's just that common cause doesn't have the profundity of meaning anything. So the show that Deborah really based it on was my pirate show. And I had a thousand people in the big top and we do this incredible, silly, mad pirate experience. And in the end, we, we defeat nightmares with a button of bravery taken from the captain's coat. And she watched all of that. And she said, we watched a thousand people who don't know each other become a pirate crew for an hour. And they've just lost themselves in it. They're going, oh, oh hey, captain, grown ups, kids, the lot. So it's yeah, kind of a shortcut, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a shortcut. Yeah. A shortcut you and kind of afterwards you wake up and realize actually what you really have and what you really need to like, you know, even mm. like those kids who said problematic, like complain and collaborating and being open for 
for a bit of time then kind of shortcutting them with the yeah. play. Exactly. And, and, you know, when Deborah writes about conflict resolution and things like that, I mean, it may feel slightly overstated, but actually we've been in camps where uh, there'd been lots of tension and lots of you know, bad energy. And people were like, we went to one Katsikas when we first started there. Everyone said it had felt really bad and really weird. And we just set up a big top in the middle of it. And you see, like, again, when you're playing a game of watching cinema or a game of circus workshop, you haven't got time to think, but I'm Afghani and he's Iraqi or I'm Somali and she's whatever. That isn't part of the game. It doesn't matter. So it's like, actually, it's not relevant. Now, if you're really tall, that might be better for basketball. But if you're really Afghan, it doesn't make any difference to playing circus or to playing singing. So, again, it's kind of like it takes out the it takes out the, the, the importance of othering and difference. And it actually shows the joy of connecting and unity. Which, which really does solve a lot of conflict and solve a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, debates and a, a lot of discord. That's a little bit like adults sit down and have a drink together and then became friends <laughs> after a yeah, couple exactly. of drinks. Got it. What exactly. was the problem? <laughs> and it's so important now, man. I mean, if only we could have a slightly... The way that we discuss things, it's like the world's become a group of angry teenagers and there's a group of rockers and a group of people who like pop music and it's whatever happens we just so aggressive with each other okay i didn't want brexit to happen maybe you did want brexit to happen does that mean i hate you does that mean that you hate me okay i'm a vegan and you're a farmer does that mean i hate you and you hate me like really we we can't have we're not able i mean what i'd like to do is get all the people and get them just to play a big game together and realize it's not really that we hate each other we just disagree and if we could disagree with just a touch more playfulness you know, we wouldn't have like the other day I was speaking to a friend of mine. We di- really disagree on vaccines, on, you know, the state of what Boris Johnson's done during coronavirus. And, we you know, we kind of disagreed. And we always have done since we were kids. He's I, I call him a right wing fascist and he calls me a, a waste of space loser lefty. And we always have disagreed and we laugh. The other day we spoke about things that are really important in a way that we teased each other. And at the end, went, all right, ma'am, love you. Catch you soon. You know, we didn't, you don't have to be, in fact, if anything, it plays into the hands of people who would rather we were separated because it's easier to, I don't know, manipulate people, the newspapers, whatever. And we're far more sensible than that as humans. We, we should be far more aware that like, you know, just play a game about it, have a playful debate. In the end, it doesn't matter anyway. Not really. So... And, and, and then, anyway, I don't even know if I answered your question then. It doesn't Probably matter. not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so last year you, you became you became a, a writer. What happened? Like, I, put, I Google your name. You know, I never needed to Google your name, but let's get prepared for this. And uh, see on Amazon, uh, your book, The Real Play Revolution, which got great reviews. My mm-hmm. cashing something maybe for a child as well. But uh, it's amazing to see that out uh, i love the title and yeah you probably already told us a bit what's about um, the the play revolution but how how came this inspiration to write a book um i was actually approached by uh the lady that runs um the publishing house it's a very very watkins publishing and one of the oldest in the city and she had come to one of the festival shows with her kids at green man festival and joined in the pirate show and heard some of my speeches. I make a little speech after each one and I talk about 
you know, blah, 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 all very silly and positive and joyful and there's no such thing as not good enough. You're all beautiful and amazing. Give me a wow, that sort of thing. <laughs> and then anyway, she contacted and said, would you consider writing a book? Um, we'd like it to be a play manual. So I said, well, I, I'm less about knowing all the games. I'm more about how to play any game. So I'm not sure that I could write a play manual because that's just not, I'm not really, yeah, I'm more interested in how things are done rather than what they are. So we came to an agreement, which was that half of the book would be games and play ideas, and the other half would be kind of my philosophy or approach, approach or whatever. Approach is better, yeah. But even there are bits of philosophy, like there is no such thing as authority unless it's offered and received with dignity, rather than you simply claim authority because you're older than me and I'm a kid. So like we, we don't do that in the seagulls. I don't claim authority over any of them. I'm a clown. I have no authority. But I know the rules of the game, and I'm going to lead it in a much more fun way if you follow. And they'll go, yeah, sounds good, Bash. That's my clown name. So there are bits in there of kind of questioning the idea of empowerment through equality of uh, hierarchy, which sounds crazy in a game, in a book about play. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it's about that. It's, uh, it's about how to deliver things, like things like if you're playing with your kids, you, sh you know, schedule it plan it make it sacred so put your phone out the way don't as an adult sit there going yeah i'm with you darling i'm with you i'm just like we all do it i'm not i'm not saying i don't we all sit on our phones but if you're going to do play with your kids and you're going to make up some imaginative game put your phone out the way sit on the floor with them don't sit on a chair whilst they're on the floor sit down with them and if you don't know what to play ask them what's your favorite game you know so it's that sort of thing in the book and it is the idea that that, yeah, I mean, we, we can, our kids are going to, I've said this again so many times, but it's true. Our children are going to have to playfully figure out using their innate confidence and problem solving skills, how to solve the mess we've made. And our parents and their parents and 100 years or 150 years since, you know, industrialization has wrecked havoc on the planet. How are our children going to create environmental solutions if they haven't been taught that, A, all set foundations are just an idea they're the current working theory but they're always open to be played with Two, rebel 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 if you say you can't recycle that you say oh, i'm going to figure out how you know and and they've got to be they've got to have the confidence to approach things knowing that everything is possible but some things are really hard whereas you know and, and i think you get that through play you, you do get that through that playful stuff walking seemed impossible the first time you tried it but with the right support from your parents, you know, if you were lucky enough to have two legs at work, then you mastered it. So we've already mastered and overcome these things. But then later in life, it's all turned and reduced to such academia that it's what you know is what counts or what you think is what counts. But, you know, there's more to it. So, um, so yeah, we've got, to, we've got to treat our children with a higher level of respect, with a much bigger focus on the empowerment of their confidence rather than teaching them the infrastructural rules of what we've created. Because what we created isn't working. Our political system isn't working. Our social systems aren't working. The environment is falling apart. Corporations are exploiting one group of people from one country to sell rubbish to another that makes them obese. You know, it's, we're in such a mess that it's going to take people who don't feel restricted by infrastructure, which is our children, and their innate sense of experimentation. To kind and of, that's what play is. To kind of reset and create something we can't imagine. And I, I'm going to read these other little points we probably already talk, um, already talk about, the kind of nice uh, 
watching your TED talk. There's a YouTube talk as well from from Ash. It's 15 minutes oh, yeah. long, so <laughs> the synthesizer. Had a very better. fancy year that year. <laughs> I was like wrote a book and did a TED talk. It was a really fancy year. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, you talk about uh, uh, the need for joy. They need to return to a state of childhood that can be a matter of life and death. And the right to play out, to dream, and joy is not a luxury but a right. So that's pretty, pretty interesting points. And, and, you know, that's probably what connects as well. We were talking now about like trying to, if you, if you want to create kind of better world, if you want to call it that. That's, um, yeah, joy is not a luxury, is it? No, I mean, the, yeah, the, the first point of you need joy is also linked to the idea of hope. And if you haven't got hope, there really is no reason to engage with anything. You know, there's no reason to engage with health. There's no reason to engage in community. Without hope, you know, what is the point in life? Like as much as we may believe or get hooked up on our careers or our partnerships or our girlfriends or our whatever, like if there's no joy in any of it, you're, you're not really alive. And suicide is on the rise. We've got such huge numbers of people who are, who are choosing to end their lives prematurely because they haven't got hope or they haven't got joy. So it's not a flippant thing. It's not like if you're lucky, you're happy. Excuse my language, but bullshit, man. If you're alive, we should be supporting each other and striving ourselves to be happy, not rich, not successful in a how could, if you're successful in business but you live alone and you go home miserable then you're not successful in business you've got the wrong balance it's like we really have to adjust to, to see that joy is one of the resources that we also have to work towards and we have like i love my job like i said to you before i've worked seven days a week for years I've, i i maybe every now and again i get tired but i love it I, I love feeling the contentment of the challenge i love feeling like i'm making a difference i love feeling i love doing it if you don't have that then stop doing what you're doing and do something you do love because you ain't alive for long enough for it to be worth wasting your life that way. Now, it's easy for me to say, and I can understand it's, it is very difficult for people when they're you know, supporting families or when they're trying to just survive. But I, the question I have is like, what is the point in just surviving if you're not happy? Every, every house is the same size when you shut your eyes. But when you shut your eyes at night to go to sleep, the thoughts you have in your head can alter. You know, you, as I say, you can be a multi-billionaire who goes to bed alone, shuts their eyes and feels little. Or you can be sharing your house, th two-bed house with four kids and whatever. And if you love each other and if you've got joy, you go to bed feeling warm. It doesn't matter. Like, it's, we've got it all screwed up. Uh, and then moving on to you said about uh, it should be a right. I'm actually going to go even technical on this. The UN Convention states in the rights of a child that they have the right enshrined in our agreed you know infrastructural whatever un convention they have the right to freely access play in a safe and age-appropriate environment it's like article 33 i think it is and that's not not quite the right right um quite the right quote i've paraphrased a lot but there's extra ones so there's a whole convention of the rights of a child to play and it talks about the rights of a child to express their preference in education the rights of um children who are being moved involuntarily, such as um, child refugees, to have the dignity of being consulted about where they're going. And if they, it's like, there's so many rights based around dignity, because I think if you strip dignity, you also, yeah, you, you strip away someone's humanity. So Enough. yeah, joy, joy and the rights to joy, it's not a flippancy. It's not some light 
Christmas card phrase. It's like facts of life. No hope, no point. And how many are putting products from, for example, these European countries? Super rich countries we have here in Europe with these refugees since like the last five years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. As, as being these Without kids asked, heavy, it's a p- hmm. Say again? Uh, did, did this country ask these kids, you know, where they want to be and where they want to go, how, what they want to study or what, what mm. they want to become, you know, if they, they're right? Yeah. But I mean, there's a balance, isn't there? Because again, like, there is, we're in a state of emergency, an inner state of emergency, and we are in one. We are actively in a state of, of a humanitarian disaster within the European Union. Now, we may not see it here in the UK, or France may only see it on the borders along Calais, where the CRS police use violence to, to keep teenagers living in the woods. You know, it, it might be in little tiny bits, but actually, like it or lump it, we are in the beginnings of actually a global emergency around displaced communities as the environment changes whether you believe it's global warming or you think it's natural you're wrong if you think it's natural it's global warming but whatever we are going to have this this huge period of humanity where people are going to move en masse because they're no longer able to sustain and this idea that we're not we have no responsibility to each other we have no reason to you know leave them in greece and give greece money and even if Greece is struggling in spite of all their most amazing efforts. You know, let's be honest, Greece has had, and, and, and Italy as well, actually, to the, you know, to the point from the, from the two roots, like huge, huge, huge burden that is actually a European burden, but put on the two front lines. It's ridiculous. It's such a preposterous way to do it. Geographical migration policy. What utter nonsense. So if you arrive into Europe, but it happens to be Greece, you've got to stay there. A, it's not law and B, it's not sensible. You know, there is enough resources and there's enough evidence that if everybody was to be fairly relocated equally around, if you want to use GDP as your reference, fine. But actually, like, everyone would thrive. Economies that have huge migrations always do better. That's why Germany have, you know, they said, yeah, come, come. You know, it's smart. You've got super qualified, super experienced people amongst everybody else you've got architects and neurophysicists and college professors all living in refugee camps being treated like they're not wanted it's short-sighted and it's yeah it's it's horrible and inhumane so there is a europe there is a europe when is kind of like uh they feel like it's, it's also political because you know people don't want um the peop- people that vote these parties don't want to see other people from other countries, wherever mm. the reason is, but so it comes. Well, I mean, it's miseducation, isn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. We are all living in the age of misinformation and miseducation. I don't even know. You know, I say that, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that what I believe is right. All I, you know, the other day I realised I was in Greece and we were chatting with. I went to get them the van that we'd left there in lockdown, and I was chatting with some of my friends there who are an anarchist clown circus team. They sail boats. And they just pull into docks and do shows. And we were chatting. And I was like, well, the, the thing is, is that we are all, uh, we are all not victims of, of, of clear-cut demographics, but we, are, we all fit into a category. I might think I'm a different thinking, alternative solution. No, like, you could tell them my music tastes, 
and they could probably describe how I wear my clothes, what length my hair is. You know, I've got a beard and long hair. I probably like rock music. Like, so there's like there's really easily definable demographics. And I have if you say, OK, I like rock music, jazz music, traveling. I run a circus and I've got long hair, live in a truck. They could then probably list all of my political opinions and where I voted on Brexit. So the idea that we can be so easily categorizable also shows that we are all um, within a system of misinformation and biased, manipulative narratives, because we, we can't we can't both be right <laughs> on, on something that is so opposing. So I can't make my point now, but um, it doesn't matter. Ash. Yeah. <laughs> Don't believe the hype. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, let's wrap it up. <clears throat> Sorry, let's wrap it wrap it up. Um, a couple of more questions on how how do you live? Like how the flying seagulls is living these kind of pandemic days, and if you had limitation financially or practically, like in different territories. I think you had to run off from Greece. You, when you were there. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah, we had to we had to immediately remove 16 people from the island of Samos, okay. two of which had flown in from Canada two days before. Cirque du Soleil performers who were coming to join us, and we had a team in Norway who had to get home, and blah 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 blah. I mean, we're lucky we had a home to get to and money to get there, so I'm absolutely not complaining. Yeah, the the, the biggest impact for us so far. I mean, I think negative projections around charity giving and you know and financial ability for the general public to share money with charities the projections of that don't look great um but the biggest thing for us is we haven't been able to go into to support the kids and there was this that horrific situation in lesvos uh, a few weeks ago where um the camp burnt and they've been uh, forced into a new camp and the conditions are terrible and blah 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 and the, you know in any other scenario just if just covid wasn't a a fatal risk if we spread it would be there and I see the faces in the videos of kids that we know and I just know that they probably even wonder like where's the seagulls because we always come at this time of year for six years now um are there still so the yeah, same that, kids like that some of them yeah, yeah some of them not all of them Jeez. but um we often meet the same kids across Greece two years later just on an island camp but uh yeah so that, that that's been the biggest thing is is we have to risk assess it you know, I, I believe in the transformative power of play. I believe they have the right to feel better. But I also believe that if we were to go and gather 400 children together in a camp who then all go home separately to camps, to tents where they're sleeping with two or three generations, that we are, you know, we are putting people's lives in danger. Now, if that turns out in the future and all these conspiracists are right and there is no such thing, fine. But like as, as a responsible children's charity, who care about it, there's, there's just no way we can take that risk. And that's, that's crippling in terms of what we're able to do, because that's now pretty much the case across all of our working landscapes, Lebanon, um, India, and, and the, the refugee crises across, across uh, Europe, and especially Greece. So yeah, that, that, that's been devastating. Financially, we, we're expecting to take a hit, but because we've been unable to spend a lot, um, and we had some very generous support from Help Refugees, which is a funding body earlier on. We're OK. But it's more just, yeah, trying to be radical and find the gaps without being reckless or creating risk is fairly tricky. So basically but, um, you need to find a, a, a social distancing kind of way of play, 
with the kids. Yeah, so let me introduce to you the flying showmobile. <laughs> Last week, I bought a, we invested in a large Ford Luton van, so the ones with the big sides. It's currently with a stage builder who's cu cutting the side to fold out into a stage. It's going to have another hole cut in the roof so we can climb out and back in without touching the floor. And we're going to be visiting uh, asylum centres across uh, Germany and the Netherlands in about a month's time. And then once we know we've got that right, we then be able to drive into camps and we'll be able to do COVID secure, two metre distanced mega shows out of the most peculiar looking vehicle that exists. So it's OK. It's, we can't connect in physical play. But um, at least it's like it's also just a symbol that they know someone cares how yeah. how they feel. Yeah, that we are you're still around. Mm. You do your best. And and there's a lot going on here. You know, in in the UK, we were sitting here, I don't know, four months ago, going, oh, we can't do anything. And I thought it's not as if there's not failures within our social system, any country anywhere in the world. And we've got a lot of kids who are living under the poverty line, living in uh, ostracized or outcast communities. And so, you know, there's a lot of work we can be doing. So we've actually got two tours operating already, one around East London and one around Greater Essex, making sure that kids who live in tough spots are also getting that release. So, yeah, sadly, suffering is not unique to one place or one group. And I think the rising tides of it in developed Europe is further sign that we haven't got it right, but also further sign that we've got something to do work-wise. And how, how do you see the future of uh, children entertainment uh, or charity like yours and what should be addressed? Mm, I mean, obviously, like, you know, I just uh, fingers crossed there is a way to rid the world of, of, of coronavirus or at least limit it. In the meantime, yeah, well, we're just going to have to do what we always do. We're going to have to dedicate ourselves to to remain determined to find and do whatever we can, wherever we can however we can and and that's it really you know there's kind of we've got out of the habit of doing projections we just we're going to just keep working as hard as we can and you know we, we put projects together and they fall apart two weeks later i just had an amazing project in athens ready to go and the restrictions changed so we pulled it it's taken a month of development it's done <laughs> in in two days it cancelled so you know you just got to be if again if you believe in positivity and if you really believe in those rights you just got to swallow that bitter pill over and over and over again and keep cracking on yeah you probably so have to say for a different time like you know it's just the, the winter approaching now so we're still mm. but it's not over it's not over it's just impossible entertainment isn't over play isn't over communities aren't over love isn't over and it's very easy in these kind of weird times to feel that it's done and we're in the apocalypse and it's the end, blah, 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 blah. You think, well, that's kind of a cop-out. We have our, we, Everyone has their moments where they go, what is the point anymore? But then you've got to go, the point is because people need you and because we all need someone. We all need to have that connection. So, you know, there's nothing more you can do than grin and bear it. This is what's happening. Accept it and, and move on. find and some move resolve. On. Yeah, that's all we say. Like, um, you know, you are quite... Quite creative, anyway. Like uh, you won't stop. <laughs> you find a way around. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, well, inshallah, as they say, <laughs> God willing, if God wills me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And from personally, like, is anything that you would have done differently, or what? What would you suggest to someone who wants to start kind of similar charities? Um, I mean, oh, this is the most boring thing I've ever said in my life. 
but uh, organize your accounts and your reporting system immediately because you have no idea how well you're doing. You have no idea how much you spent. You have no idea what impact you're making if you don't stay organized. And untie, you know, keeping 10 strands of string untangled from the beginning is far easier than untangling them after five years. So get systematic. If you believe in it, whatever your passion is, you, you'll organize it. You know, you, you've got to you can't just run at something with blind idealism. The idealism should be the, the wind in your sails, but the, the organization, the strategy should be the rudder that steers because then you'll have the most impact. Then you'll have you know, the, the biggest fun. That and the other piece of advice I give, and I give it all the time, is don't listen to anyone because everyone will tell you if you're doing something new, yeah, the thing is it doesn't really, mm, do you know what? Just block your ears and get on with it. If you really, really feel in your bones that it's going to work out, you just got to, you just got to put your head down and do it. The amount of people, even people who meant well, even closest friends and even founding members of the Seagull Project told me the first time I told them my plan, it doesn't work, you can't just do that sort of thing. And I was like, well, watch. And now, you know, we're here. So take no advice, put a lot of energy, and it takes more energy than you'll ever imagine. You've got to just keep going even when it feels like you can't. Because somebody else will, you know. Sure. You, you can do it. And at, at, at the moment, are you are we expanding more the Flying Seagull project? Oh yeah. I mean, I just I've been making a list today. We've got eleven new ideas. So uh, <laughs> the latest one is a mobile Santa's grotto. <laughs> so it's going to travel around the UK to communities that are having a really tough time and going to really struggle over winter. And we're going to get rich toy companies to give us some toys, and we're going to take Santa to their doors <laughs> boom that's a good one isn't it yeah we're expanding and, and in the uk you know we are working in the uk more exactly like i just said we rushed at it because we got back and we had to do something so now we're going okay let's just let's do a let's do a joy and sorrow analysis of the uk and see who needs the most cheering up and go cheer them up so. all right Thank you, thank you, Ash, for this. <laughs> you used to chat anyway, I know you. Uh, <laughs> and long That's life true. to the Flying Seagull Project. And hopefully you've been inspired by Ash's stories today. Uh, you can check the Flying Seagull Project website where you can donate and scroll through their shop and you can find a link to his book in the episode description. If you'd like to hear more stories from artists and get notified when new episodes are published, follow Carpe Diem on social media and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app. Carpe Diem is all the main streaming platform like Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn and blah, blah, blah. You can find direct links to apps and social media at the Carpe Diem website, carpediem.podbean.com. If you use Apple iTunes, I'd appreciate if you could leave a review. It will help Carpedian to rank up in the searches so we can hear more stories. People can hear more stories about, like the Ash ones we had today and this guy really deserve. And thanks for your time today and to the next one. Ciao!